Well, I want you to think about this passage. It's an incredible passage today. And I want you to think about this phrase, all right? And this is the phrase. The phrase is simply, as Jesus reverses the curse, our idols are exposed and driven out. As Jesus reverses the curse, our idols are exposed and they are driven out. The idea of reverse the curse is big for us, isn't it? Do any of you remember the sign on Starro Drive that was for the reverse curve, and yet in 2003 it became reverse the curse, right? The curse of the Bambino, the 86 years where the Red Sox went without winning. Where were you October the 27th in 2004? I remember where I was. I was in my apartment in Cambridge, and as we watched the Red Sox win, I remember going outside and hearing the cheers in my neighborhood, the horns going off and the people screaming, Boston, Red Sox, and then watching as every crowd gathered and began to do the crazy things that all the Red Sox fans do when we win those tournaments, or those, those uh, victories, rather. I want you to hold on to that, and I want to tell you that the reverse of that curse is fun to laugh about, but Luke writes about the reverse of a curse here that causes a sports victory to not even pale in comparison, but really to make you blush to even think that it could even be spoken of in the same sentence. In this passage, Luke dives deep into the Old Testament. And what he does is demonstrate that Jesus Christ reverses the curse of sin that leads to death and that death that is to all mankind. And I want to ask you the first of a few questions today. What would the reverse of the curse of death look like in your life? What do you think it would look like? And I want to show you what Paul demonstrates it to be like in these few verses. And then we're going to close with a few more questions. All right? As Jesus reverses the curse, our idols are exposed and driven out. Let me show you how this happens. Look in verses 1, 2, and 3 with me. It starts with the idea of persecution. We're going to follow up persecution with Philip and then finally with Peter and John. That's how we're going to break this up. So verses 1 through 3. It says right there on 9.16 that Saul approved of the execution of Stephen. You remember Stephen stood up and he said, look, I'm not speaking against Moses. You're the actual ones that have not followed the law of Moses. And indeed, Jesus came and he not only fulfilled the law, but he fulfilled the whole purpose of the temple by being a sacrifice for us. So now the temple isn't what it used to be. But you worship the temple instead of worshiping the one to whom the temple points. And it says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And it says that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And it says that they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem, it says. It says that devout men buried Stephen. 
and they made great lamentation over him. And then it goes back to Saul and it references Saul and it says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Luke is obviously preparing us for understanding what we will hear on Easter Sunday, the conversion of Saul to Paul, the conversion of Saul from unbelief to belief. And here he pits Paul against the church in the image of a lion that rages through the town, pulling out Christians from their homes and committing them to prison. But as is the case throughout this book of Acts, the acts of Jesus, the risen and reigning Messiah, the acts of Jesus from heaven through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit, that this persecution had the opposite effect, didn't it? The disciples were scattered except for the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. And we pick up what happened with Philip in verse 4. And what I want you to see is what Philip did. Look in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. No longer just the role of the apostles, but now those who were scattered went out. And as they went, they proclaimed who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And it says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. To you and me, we read that and we say, no big deal. Philip goes to the next town out. Finally, he's not being chased. He catches his breath. He looks around. Somebody says, why are you running? And he says, I've been running because I'm being persecuted. And they said, why are you being persecuted? And he begins to talk about Jesus, right? But here's the amazing reality of the persecution. It drove the disciples to do the very thing that Jesus promised that it would do, to lead them to share about who he is, to be his witnesses in first Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria. So even the persecution, Paul, Saul rather, ravaging like a lion, has driven Jesus's prophecy of how the gospel would go forth. And Philip goes to Samaria. Now Samaria is not just the next town. Samaria is a region. Samaria is a region that the Jews of Jerusalem have been enemies with for over a thousand years. Samaria is the region of Israel as a nation that belonged to the northern kingdom as versus Jerusalem belonging to the southern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And you know that those ten tribes after the reign of Solomon broke away from the two tribes in the south and became their own kingdom. And you know the story of the scriptures that those ten tribes began to worship idols. And if you want to go and read a fascinating account to which Luke is referring to in this very chapter, you can go to 2 Kings 16, or 17 rather, and you can read how, because of their idolatry, God brought the Assyrians in to crush the Israelites in the region of Samaria. And it actually says in chapter 17, because of their idolatry, the Assyrians came in, they crushed the Israelites in Samaria, and they repopulated Samaria with five other people groups. 
And with these other people groups, the other religions of those various people groups. So that Samaria became not only ethically diverse, but also religiously diverse in such a way that the Jews in Jerusalem continued to hate the Samaritans as their enemies, not only from when they broke away, but throughout all the period that followed. In fact, when the southern kingdom was crushed and taken to Babylon and then returned to Jerusalem, the Samaritans came down and said, let us help you build the temple. And they said, no, you cannot. And so the Samaritans went on and built their own temple at Mount Gerizim, this same mountain, Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed or was about to sacrifice Isaac before the Lord stopped him. And because the Samaritans were separated from the Jews, religiously they only believed in the first five books of Moses, they, they worshipped in another temple, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And yet, this is exactly where Philip goes. And anyone who would have read this account in the first century, their mouths would have dropped and said, no way. That's where Philip went. No way he went there to tell them about Jesus. And we hear that he preaches to them about Christ. It says in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said to them by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verses 5 and 6 and 12 talk about Philip preaching. Here in verse 7 we see that Philip enters in and with his preaching he drives out evil spirits. And there is even healing. And the result of all of this in verse 8 says that there is great joy in that city. The Lord had told the people of Israel in 2 Kings 17 that he had brought the Assyrians in because of the idolatry of the people and therefore they were crushed. And though those people continued on with their idolatry, here we see Jesus working through Philip to proclaim his name as Messiah in that very area, driving out the evil spirits, driving them out and making Christ beautiful. And here we see one particular person that we meet. Verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and had amazed the people. Now, this isn't David Copperfield. It's not David Blaine. It's not a sleight of hand and a trick and an illusion and holding your breath and, and getting in a bucket of ice for, you know, unbelievable amounts of time. The magic that Simon practiced was sorcery. He called on the spirits of other gods to work through him to do things that amazed people, and people were amazed. And we're told that Simon did it to make a great name for himself. In fact, 
The people who watched Simon thought, this is one in whom a God called great gives all of his power. In fact, they would have said that God is incarnated into Simon. In fact, some scholars believe that Simon was saying, I am the Messiah. Except when Philip comes and proclaims who Jesus is, the people turn and they see a different power. They see the evil spirits being drawn out of people and screaming as they go, and they see people healed, and they hear the good news of Jesus, the Messiah of God who had died on the cross for their sins and yet was raised to the newness of life. And they are amazed and they put their trust in him. The story goes on to say that Simon was amazed by Philip too. As one who knew magic, he thought, what kind of magic is this? And we're even told that he believed he went ahead and got baptized and he wouldn't leave Philip's side that he was with Philip constantly. And we go to our last section of what happens in this passage with Peter and John coming. You see, in verse 14, the apostles in Jerusalem, it says, heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Again, to you and to me, we go, yeah, Samaria, the next region over. To the apostles, this was... So radical. There's no way that this is happening. We've got to go see it. And in fact, what we see here is that the gift of the Holy Spirit was withheld from the Samaritans who even believed and were baptized until the apostles got there. Now, we've got to deal with that somehow. And we've got to either say, well, there must be, you know, two steps in becoming a Christian. You believe and you're baptized. And then secondarily, somebody's got to put their hands on you for you to receive the Spirit. But that doesn't jive with the rest of the Acts of the Apostles. It doesn't jive with what Peter tells the people in the second chapter of Acts that all they needed to do was repent and believe and receive the Holy Spirit right then and there. And that's indeed what happens. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this here the norm? That it's two parts of salvation? Or is this unique? And everything in the story points to it being very unique. Because here, in, in this concentric circle of glory... Jesus is reversing the curse, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but also in Samaria. And so that the apostles would believe it, God works through them in the laying on of their hands to see that the very same Spirit is poured out on the Samaritans as was poured out in Jerusalem from this experience, the Apostle Paul would be able to write in Ephesians that we have been given the same Spirit. There is one Lord. There is one baptism. There is one body. There's no differentiation. Not even with the Samaritans and the Jews. We are one because of the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing time in the history of the church. The advancement of Jesus reversing the curse 
of sin that leads to death. And because he had been raised from the dead and defeated sin, what we see is that blessing poured out on the Samaritans. And we see in verse 18 how Simon responds. Look, he says this, And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver, and your par- may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What is Peter saying? There's only one other place that the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity is mentioned in the Scripture. And that actually comes out of Deuteronomy. It comes out of Deuteronomy 29.18. And you want to know what's said in Deuteronomy 29.18 when it references gall and bitterness? Peter here, or Luke here, is actually quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And what happens in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy is God warns the people, when you pass through these lands, do not worship their gods. Do not let the gall of bitterness enter into your heart. I'm warning you, because if you do, I will turn you over to them. I will leave you, and the curse of death will come upon you. Peter references this very instance with Simon and uncovers Simon's heart. Because Simon the magician has been a syncretist of religion his whole life, using what he wants here and here and here and taking some of God and saying, that's fine, I'll work with him too as long as I have the power to do what I want to do and to give people what they want so that they think I'm great. And the apostle Peter uncovers the heart of Simon in this passage. It's absolutely amazing what he does. The warning that he references in Deuteronomy 29 is the warning against idolatry. That same warning that comes true in 2 Kings 17 when God sends the Assyrians to crush the northern kingdoms because they turn to idolatry. It's the same way that The prophet Jeremiah speaks in Lamentation 3 when he actually says that there is wormwood and gall in us and therefore we are filled with weeping. And it's that passage that you know comes before that great hope of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases and his mercy that never comes to an end. And here the apostle Peter says to him in verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Not only is Luke demonstrating to Theophilus that Jesus' reign has entered an entirely new sphere, a new epoch of reversing the curse of death, 
But Peter, in his words, is explaining how Samaria became Samaria through their idolatry and how Jesus was reversing that through the preaching of his word and the pouring out of his spirit and how Simon's heart is uncovered in his own syncretism, the joining together of worshiping anything. And what we see here is that the Apostle Peter says, no, there is no compromise. You, Simon, cannot be great and cannot be considered the power of the great one and Jesus be Messiah as well. There is only one. And may your silver die with you, Simon, because you thought that you could buy the gift of God. Luke is demonstrating to his audience, Theophilus, that Jesus' reign as Messiah has advanced beyond Jerusalem and is reconstructing the very people of God by saving Samaritans and by bringing them into union with him and with fellow Jews. The way we understand this is that as Jesus reverses the curse, not only were Simon's idols exposed and driven out, but so are ours. So are our idols exposed and driven out. And here we end with the questions. This started off with persecution, right? The persecution that caused the disciples to flee from Jerusalem. And I have a question for you. Where in your life do you seek to avoid being known as a Christian? Where do you seek to avoid being known as a Christian? Specifically this, that you have no other hope in your life save Jesus. Where do you avoid being known for the fact that you have no other hope in your life save Jesus. Tertullian, who was in the second century, said this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's an interesting thing to consider how the church might advance in Newton and in Wellesley if we were willing to be known that our only hope is not in Jesus plus politics or in Jesus plus education or in Jesus plus success or in anything else, but our only hope is in Christ. And for us to be persecuted for that, that people would call us foolish and ridiculous. Here's a second question for you. Where might you be trying to be the Messiah? the Savior, the solution to an issue. Instead of saying, I want a Messiah, saying, I don't want a Messiah, I want to be the Messiah. And God, give me whatever it takes to be the Messiah. We are shown here through the person of Simon that there is one Messiah. Not two, not three, and not 130. One Messiah. 
Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who alone has the power to drive out the evil spirits, to bring healing, and even as we sang earlier, to give us new hearts and new spirits within us, right? Jesus alone has that ability. Where might you be making deals with God? Where might you be saying to God, God, I have done X and Y and Z, and you ought to do X for me. What we hear in this passage is that Jesus cannot be bought and the gift of the Holy Spirit cannot be bought by anything but must be received. It must be received by needy persons. People who say, I need a Savior. Help me. And finally... Where is jealousy ignited in your heart? Over what do you become jealous? Because our jealousy exposes for us our idols. The gall of bitterness is that. It's a tenacious envy in our hearts that causes us to look into the world with bitterness and say, I want that. I want that. It is that bitterness that is the opposite of the joy that is reflected in the Samaritans when they receive the Holy Spirit and they're filled with joy. They're filled with joy. Jealousy, envy, starts simply with comparison. And comparison is the power that robs us of the joy of what has been given to us. I put in the beginning of the order of worship this stanza of joy to the world. Mita and I got married on December 17th. It'll be 25 years this year. We left the sanctuary to joy to the world. And I remember thinking, this seems a little bit weird to me. Joy to the world, the Lord has come and out we go walking. As if somehow we were connected to that. But even more amazed as I looked at this passage and thought, as the Messiah is known to a group of people, what is experienced is joy. Joy at the Messiah being revealed to them and meeting all of their needs. Joy at the Messiah joining himself to the church and as we understand marriage to be an image of Christ and the church. And that the reverse of the curse is what Jesus is about. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. This passage is nothing short of an example 
of an entirely new era of salvation reaching out into the Samaritans where through the apostles by the power of the Spirit Jesus reconstitutes His people that He might be glorified as Messiah. And it helps us see that our idols are exposed and praises be to God that they are driven out before Jesus. I know that I need more and more of this as the gospel is pressed deeper and deeper into my heart that I might not be tricked into the idea of being the Messiah, of making deals with God, or continuing to live in this place of deep jealousy and envy. Jesus is setting us free as far as the curse is found. Praise be to him. Let's pray.